You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of completing one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is sponsored by Antioch University's Low Residency MFA Program in Creative Writing. Want to learn how to write fiction, nonfiction, poetry, young adult, screenwriting, or playwriting in a two-year program that's mostly remote? Apply by visiting antioch.edu slash apply. Hi, my name is Kenji Liu, and I wrote a book called Monsters I Have Been. Kenji C. Liu is author of Map of an Onion, national winner of the 2015 Hillary Gravendick Poetry Prize. His poetry is in American Poetry Review, Action Yes, Apogee, Barrow Street, The Feminist Wire, The Progressive, The Rumpus, The Volta, Split This Rock's Poem of the Week series, several anthologies, and two chapbooks, Craters, A Field Guide, and You Left Without Your Shoes. A Kundiman Fellow and an alumnus of Vona Voices and the Community of Writers, he lives in Los Angeles. In Monsters I Have Been, Lou takes existing texts and remixes them, creating multifaceted poems that investigate the relationship between toxic masculinity and forms of violence plaguing our modern society. It also explores the male-male erotic and marginalized masculinities that are urgently needed as a counterweight to today's dominant hypermasculinity. Really, it got started right after my first collection was published, which was Map of an Onion. I was looking for a way to transition from that book to the next one. I was looking for something new to to write about, but I didn't know how. And so I was actually in New York City at the Kunduman Asian American Writers Retreat, and I got some really good advice from one of the faculty there. He basically said, go back into the first collection, find something there that still feels like it has some kind of juice to it and dive into it even more and see what happens. That's what I did. In the first collection, I had a poem titled Man Poem. It was in a different mode than a lot of the other poems in the first collection. It was kind of funny and irreverent and also thinking about masculinity I felt like there was way more to be said about that. And so I started doing research about the theme of masculinity and taking aspects of masculinity that seemed ridiculous to me and kind of blowing them up or exploring them in a surreal way. And so I started looking for other examples of surreal masculinity. For example, I found a really awesome closed down kind of ghost theme park in Japan that used to be... American West themed theme park. They had all these animatronics of cowboys and famous cowboy actors. The place had been shut down for a while. And so when I looked at these photos of these animatronics, like their guts were hanging out. And that was amazing because it was sci-fi-ish. I'm a huge sci-fi person. And it was a really interesting part of the of the park where it was kind of a quote-unquote replica of the U.S.-Mexico border. And you could go to the Mexico side and shoot at the American flag, little BB guns or something. It was things like that I was looking for. And I used that as a starting point for generating new work. In between the first and second book, I had one chapbook come out. I was starting to play with some of the methods or techniques that I generated in order to write new work. 
So the Dear I Ching series in this book was created using this method of going to an online I Ching reading website and asking questions that I thought that I wouldn't want to answer. The reasoning behind that was the I Ching being this thousands of years old Chinese oracle system of fortune telling connected to Confucianism and patriarchy in China. And I thought, well, naturally, I want to ask the questions about destroying the patriarchy and destroying all these things that it probably has a vested interest in maintaining. And I had gotten that inspiration from some sort of digital artists that I had read about, one of them being Ricardo Dominguez from UC Santa Barbara, who has made a life out of using hacking as a way to also perform civil disobedience and distribution of service attacks. I forget what the exact term is, but it's when you try to overwhelm a website by asking it the same question over and over and over and over until it crashes. So I was kind of interested in that concept, asking this computer version of the I Ching, this question that might make it crash, or at least it wouldn't want to answer. And so this series titled Dear I Ching, comma, I would ask a question like, what's the best way for me to destroy patriarchy? Or what's the best way for me to destroy white supremacy or something like that? which then led later on to the more computer-based techniques that I use to construct a lot of the poems in Monsters I Have Been. In some ways, it's not all that different from existing techniques of collage or erasure or some of these other methods that are out there. The reason to me why it's a little different is because of the politics behind it. I wanted to find a way to interact with and question and really dig into texts or existing bodies of text that in some way represented aspects of masculinity. For example, if I wanted to write a poem about hypermasculinity, I would go and search the internet for interesting existing texts. And what I mean by text is blog posts or academic articles or even speeches given by politicians or news articles and movie scripts. And I would choose at least two of them that were really good representations of what I was looking for. Then I would throw them in kind of a text manipulator website that basically helped me scramble up the texts so that I was mixing them together and randomizing the order of the words. And then once I had scrambled all of it together, then I would start cutting away at what was left, removing extraneous words and really trying to find interesting juxtapositions of words and ideas that might have come up as a result of scrambling the texts and reusing those words in a new way. And the goal for me was, like I said, a political goal because I was very purposely choosing these texts for a political reason because I wanted to critique certain aspects of masculinity. And then the way that I would shape the resulting text was also with that in mind. Kind of half-half process of just let's see what happens and letting things come together naturally versus purposefully chopping away things and shaping them with something in mind. It's kind of a balance between the two. Then the resulting text would often be in a way speaking back to the original bodies of text anyway. And because it was composed of words from those texts, it's almost like implicating the original texts because, hey, I just found these words in there and you were saying these things. So here's this new poem and 
actually, I didn't do that much. I just reused your words. The reason why I even started exploring these methods was after the first book, I was a little bit bored with just having to dig into my own history and unconscious or unconsciousness to find new material to write poems with. I really was interested in finding kind of like an outside, I wouldn't say person, but just kind of like an outside source to bounce off of and to generate new ideas by kind of reflecting on something outside of myself. And I think that's when I started looking at artificial intelligence type stuff. And, you know, that's what led me to the I Ching. I also explored things like AI bots that are just on the internet or on Twitter and things like that, where you can go and, you know, there's like the Shakespeare AI and you can go ask it a question. And it'll say something back to you in a very Shakespearean way. But many of these things are not very smart, so it's not very useful. But really, I just wanted to see if I could use these kinds of things to not necessarily have a conversation with, but just to generate stuff that I could then use to write new work with. And that's why I think starting with the I Ching was really helpful because when you go to one of these fortune telling sites, whether it's the Tarot or whatever, the responses that you get to your question are also poetic and also in many ways very vague, but somehow relatable that's a good place to mine for ideas or turns of phrases. They all represent different points of view. And so I can have a conversation with those points of view through this method that I'm exploring. Just things that are interesting because you asked the question. Basically, these are answers to your question in some way. So it's up to you to interpret it. Why not interpret it into a, a poem? I should just say that the idea of even calling them Frankenstein poems or Frankenpose, the story of Dr. Frankenstein was kind of a natural fit for this project because Dr. Frankenstein created a man out of dead pieces of other men. And that new monster went on to be a product of Dr. Frankenstein and kind of a violent reproduction of violent masculinity. And because it's made from other pieces of other people, Obviously, that's an amazing metaphor. And it's also something where you can look at the Frankenstein monster and you can't really say, well, that monster has nothing to do with me because that monster was actually literally made from other human beings. So that monster is not separate from human society. Human society actually created it. And no matter how much you might hate the monster, it's still a reflection of the society that created it and the person who created it. The way that I think about making meaning in my process is that I don't think about the, the truth necessarily while I'm creating or writing or arranging these poems, but I do think about whether they're somehow commenting on like a topic or an issue that is important for me to address. So sometimes that means just writing something where the voice of it is just so the opposite of what I am trying to critique that it's obvious that I'm just, you know, writing something that is trying to provide something that's an alternative to, say, hypermasculinity or toxic masculinity. Or sometimes it might be that I'm kind of parroting that voice of toxic masculinity, but done in a way where it's clear that it's making fun of it. You know, I might also be 
speaking in the voice of toxic masculinity, but I'm trying to do it in a way where it's obviously a tragedy that you can say these things or that you can think like this. And the way that I do that, I think, is through, I mentioned earlier about surrealness. Writing something in a surreal way is really helpful for that because you can make it so weird that you can't take it seriously. You might be able to say something in the voice of toxic masculinity, but because you make it really surreal or the, the surrounding words around that line are so surreal, you're not necessarily saying that this is a good thing. It's a hard line to walk for sure. That's how I try to approach it because sometimes it's important to kind of just show, oh, well, this is the language of toxic masculinity just to recognize that this and that's what it sounds like. But I also don't want it to kind of replicate the oppression of toxic masculinity. So then I have to do something to it in order to make it clear that it's not just, I'm saying this because it's okay. The way that I see myself located in these poems, there's a lot of different ways. I definitely started from a place of, oh, I hate certain aspects of masculinity, conventional masculinity, and I want to write stuff that critiques it somehow. But then as I went on, I found, well, it's kind of boring to just write a whole book where I'm just kind of being critical of, of something all the time. And in some ways, by only being critical of it, felt like I was removing myself from it as if, well, this has nothing to do with me. I'm just being critical of it as if it hasn't affected me at all or as if I don't participate in it. And so that's kind of where I had to start turning my attention to personalizing it or humanizing it because conventional masculinity, as I like to say, is just an expression of something that impacts me and even though I have a critical perspective on it, it doesn't mean that I don't act out conventional masculinity or that I don't benefit from it or that it's even all bad. And then on top of that, also write about the ways that conventional masculinity does not fit me or that I do not fit it and to find ways to bring in other visions of masculinity that I felt were important to me there was, a, I think, a couple in there where I was looking at versions of masculinity that are found in Japan that, by conventional perspectives, would be read as kind of feminine. And for me, you know, having grown up here in the U.S. as an Asian American, I've always known that I don't fit the conventional kind of white man, straight white man, cowboy version of masculinity. And not that hardly anybody does, but that's the ideal for some reason. That's when I started writing stuff that was more, in a way, more tender and more, well, here are these other things that are beautiful too. It's not all just hard stuff. In some ways, I learned poetry doesn't necessarily have to be just something that I generate from experience in the sense of oftentimes when we write poetry or when we learn to write poetry, we're being asked to write from our own experience, you know, tell a story from our own experience. It has to be personal in order to have some kind of emotional relatability. I mean, while I think that's true, I also think that there's other ways of writing poetry. And I think that this kind of proved it to me. It was personal to me because I was invested in the subject, 
and I was writing these things based out of my own personal experience with masculinity and my own thoughts about it. But the process of creating it in this way was not necessarily personal. Like I wasn't thinking back to something that happened to me as a child or something and writing about it. It was more using this process to write about something that did have meaning for me, but it wasn't personal in that sense of telling a story about me. So it was really good for me to kind of see that in order to write interesting poetry, I don't necessarily have to follow that model of having to confess something about myself. In some ways, the whole book is a confession about myself because it's about masculinity, but it's not necessarily because I'm telling you about something weird that happened to me as a child. So it's just a different approach. Since writing this book, I have been trying to figure out what to do next, and I am kind of going back to the more conventional narrative writing about myself just to see if anything's changed. But also based on the way that the book was received, and when I read these poems to audiences, you know, there's a, a lot of people really relate to the poems, and it's not necessarily because I'm telling them a personal story, it's because I'm reflecting on something that affects everybody in some way. So it's interesting to get that confirmed that there's many different ways to write effective poetry. In this book and also my first book, multilingualism is really important. Number one, because English is not my first language. Japanese was my first language. My relationship to Japanese is also a little bit tenuous because I grew up speaking it and then I lost it as I went on in my schooling. And so even though I've always understood Japanese and can speak Japanese to a certain extent, it was important to me to be able to use both English and Japanese as a way of just kind of reclaiming my use of Japanese. And also it was part of this process for me of thinking about how the Japanese language, even though I don't use it in daily life anymore, how it still affected the way that I think in terms of actual sentence structure, but also just how I even conceptualize the world because it's not English. English is who does things to what object or who does things with what object to who. Whereas with Japanese, you can have conversations without being explicit about those things. Saying English, I said, Kenji went to the pizza shop and bought some pizza. So you know who did it, you know what it was done to, but in Japanese, you could say the store was gone to and the pizza was gotten. You don't really have to say who did it. And so for me, it was really important to really think about how I could make sure that the way that I use English would be interrupted by the way that Japanese works. How can I use Japanese grammar to interrupt English? How can I play with the quote-unquote passive voice, which in English is considered to be a no-no, but is something that is very commonly used in Japanese in a way that feels good to me, and also kind of give a middle finger to those who think that the passive voice is wrong somehow. And then on top of that, my process of trying to relearn or expand my use of Japanese, because even though I grew up speaking Japanese, I was never formally schooled in it. And so I didn't learn how to read or write it very much. And so I've had to teach that to myself as an adult. And so beginning to try to use that stuff in my poetry has been important too. So if say you have a, a Chinese character 
in Japanese, there's a convention where if that character seems hard to understand, on the side of it, you put in small Japanese characters how you pronounce it. That's something that I played with in Monsters I Have Been with, you know, say I have an English word, then I put Japanese characters above it to either explain the English word underneath or to pose a different interpretation of what's going on underneath, which isn't something that you'll be able to understand unless you read Japanese. But, you know, those kinds of experiments have been super important to me as a way of, I'm still that kid who, when I was learning English, was critiqued by a teacher for writing in English with Japanese grammar unknowingly at the time. But now as an adult, I'm kind of like, well, no, I'm just going to do it because I'm an adult. The fact that there's any Japanese at all in my writing is kind of an accomplishment because I just really lost it due to my English language schooling. But then also beginning to figure out how to use Japanese to be an equal language to English has been kind of a, a long process and I still haven't completely figured that out yet. And then also they don't have language specialists at Alice Jane's Books. They definitely leaned on me to figure that part out in terms of double checking the Japanese in the manuscript. I definitely had to ask a couple friends to help me out with that to check for correctness. But also, it's one of those weird things where as someone who grew up with Japanese but doesn't speak perfect Japanese, is not fluent in it, but also I feel some sense of ownership over the language, even if I was using it incorrectly, I'm more or less okay with it staying that way as kind of a representation of somebody who is in between two languages is I kind of feel like, well, that's just a representation of how, who I am and how I live in the languages anyway. And there's a whole community of people like that who claim the language, but don't use it very well. And that's just who we are because of how our lives have been. And it's another area for exploration. So in putting the book together, I don't really have a specific process that I use, but I do have certain kind of concepts that I go with. So for example, it's a mixtape, right? It has to have a certain flow. It has to have certain themes that run through it. You want to start people in one place and then take them to another place. And so the best way to do that, of course, is completely unique to whatever you're doing. But just the idea that, let me see if I can find certain poems that can be kind of like the strong poems that might be at the beginning and the end and the middle to serve as kind of what I think of as tent poles for the whole thing. What can go in between that leads from one to the other? What are some poems I can put in there that maybe are in conversation with the other poems around it that either confirm or support the other poems or maybe completely go against what the other poems are doing? There's a lot of challenges just in the ordering and the thinking about that flow. Mixtape metaphor is perfect because if you're making a mixtape for someone that you have the hots for, you don't necessarily want to start off right away, like full in with a, like a, hey, I like you, or I love you or whatever. You want to ease into it with a starter song that's kind of, you know, like, oh, I like this song. And then maybe a few songs in or at the end or something, you want to hit them with the, hey, I got the hots for you. But in between, you want to throw in maybe some fun things or you don't want the person to just to think that you're desperate. So you have to throw in some other things that show what kind of person you are. 
It's a similar thing for me, I think, with putting together a book manuscript because it has to have variety. It has to have where it starts and where it's going. But of course, none of that is easy. And in terms of challenges, it takes forever to try to figure out the order of a book. In some ways, it's the most annoying part because you also start realizing, oh, well, I have too many of this kind of poem and I need more of this other thing. And then you start realizing where the holes are, where you need to write more. Just coming up with the title of the book is its own process. That's really hard. I wouldn't even know how I came up with the title Monsters I Have Been, but in some ways that's the most important thing because it, it frames the whole book. It's like, what do you label the mixtape? Like, you don't label it, hey, let's get together soon. You have to come up with something subtle. And then on top of that, that's even before you even start trying to find somebody who wants to publish it, right? Because then that's a whole other process. I think as a manuscript, I was working on it probably just, just maybe a year. It was a little bit different of a process with this book than with the first book, because when you're writing your first book, you have no idea what you're doing. You have no idea when something's ready or not, or if there's enough material in it for it to be considered a book. You don't even know how many pages a book is supposed to be. But with this book, you know, I had some ideas, so at least I kind of had a feeling for when it might feel kind of ready. So for me, I'm not, I'm not the kind of person who has to have a, something that, that feels absolutely finished before I start sending it out for consideration or anything like that. I think that's one area sometimes where writers and maybe new writers have trouble, right? Which is how do I know when something's finished? How do I know when I can send it to someone for consideration for publication? And for me, I've always just kind of sent it whenever I felt like it was good enough as opposed to feeling finished. And I know that's not easy for someone to figure out when it's at that point. And sometimes it's, it's also a question of confidence or not having enough experience to be able to figure out how to do that. I find that it, it works for me to think about an almost their work in progress and that even if it was going to be accepted somewhere for publication I would still need to do work on it so it was never going to be done anyway so might as well just get it in shape and then find somebody who's willing to work with me on it to, to get it into final shape. In terms of the process of it being accepted for publication this book was a little bit unusual because I don't think I sent it out very much to too many publishers. And this is kind of a reflection of the times that I was trying to work on this project. So I was writing this book and I was trying to get it published under the former president of the United States. And it felt to be writing a book about masculinity and hypermasculinity and the problems with those things felt very, very, very timely because every single day you saw an example in the news of something that was related to that topic. When I sent the manuscript out, I felt like if the book was in the right place, that, that publisher would immediately know or be able to tell that it was timely. And that's kind of what happened. I think, you know, maybe I sent the manuscript out to two or three places before I sent it out to Alice James Books. I sent it into Alice James's um, kind of annual book contest. But I had just sent it in, and then maybe one or two weeks after that, I got a call from Alice James, 
And they said, we basically want to skip the contest and just publish it because of what it was about and because it was relevant. Obviously, I can't say that that's a common experience for people. So I was lucky in that sense. Really unusual. You know, Alice James is a small independent publisher and don't have a very large staff, which many of these presses don't. My experience with them, it was very, very good. At the same time, there wasn't a lot of editorial back and forth, which can be good and can be not so good sometimes. They were really willing to let me have the book be what I wanted it to be. I was actually expecting more editorial comments. I was expecting an editor to really have detailed suggestions about things. Once I sent them what I considered to be basically the final version of the manuscripts, I had an editor go over it with me just for grammar and spelling and punctuation and that kind of stuff. Then it was on to the book design phase. My experience with Alice James was significantly different from my first publisher. They actually had somebody to do PR, which with a small press, it's kind of hard to find. And so that was, a, that was really great to just have somebody dedicated to thinking about, okay, how are we going to get this out there and promote the book? It was a relatively not painful process to get the whole thing together and ready for publication, which again, I would not say is probably going to be common for most people, but I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why it was so easy. Once the book is out in the world, that's where it goes from being my book to something that has its own life that I don't have much control over. And that's kind of a unique process in the life of a writer. I think a lot of people start creative writing because it feels very personal and you want to write personal things or about personal things. And often we don't consider a potential audience as being something that affects our writing. In that life cycle of going into being a published writer, there's a really interesting part of the whole process. And it's, of course, mostly a good feeling because the book comes out and you start doing readings and events for the book. You start going to conferences. You might travel to different cities to promote the book. And you start meeting people who you know have read the book and just want to say, good things about it to you. Or, you know, if you're lucky to have published a previous book or other work before it, you know, you start meeting people who have actually followed your work, which is also an amazing experience and feeling. I think the reception for the book in general was very positive. And I think for me, the interesting piece about the reception was actually more, in some ways, a scarier process for me than actually getting the first book out. Because even though I've said that it doesn't feel super personal, or it's not about super personal stories from my life, in some ways it feels very personal because I'm critiquing something that doesn't want to be critiqued. And so I was a little bit scared of, well, are people gonna have weird reactions about having masculinity confronted or, or critiqued? Are people going to have weird reactions about pieces that support alternatives to conventional masculinity? Are people going to have feelings about it? And then also, how am I going to actually go out there and talk about these things when I'm presenting the book, right? Because in some ways, in addition to the pieces about masculinity, 
there are pieces in the book for me which felt very tender because in some ways it, it was my coming out as somebody who feels a little bit not that I am so unconventionally gender queer or something but like it just felt like a tender thing to talk about things that may not be acceptable to some people and then on top of that I, I was like well how do I talk about these things how do I represent or facilitate a good conversation about masculinity, gender queerness, queerness, when I go to an event and I'm, and I'm basically reading these poems, how do I responsibly talk about these things? So those were all things that I had to really put some energy into to think about. Just looking at me, I don't appear to be queer or gender queer or any of these other things. And so in some ways, this book was like me saying, hey, these are the things I am. I was a little worried about how people would receive that. Advice I have for new or starting out writers. The thing that comes to mind immediately is if you speak multiple languages, don't be afraid to use your multiple languages because English is not the most important language in the world. And it might seem like it, but it's not. And... I think for me, what's been helpful has been to find a way to stop thinking about writing as something that's special that I do on the side, but to really think of it as work and as legitimate work that takes a lot of effort and practice and reading. I think a lot of times with creative writing and other creative arts, People get into it because it's something that is inspiring and helps you kind of face the difficulties of the world by doing something fun, something that feels like you can express yourself. But I think moving from that into a different phase where you might want to think about publishing things or just continuing and generating more work and just kind of staying in the discipline for a long time, to me, it's about changing your relationship to it so that you're not just waiting for inspiration, but you're just kind of plugging away at things and you really just see it as just part of your life as opposed to just being something special that you do once in a while. It's not necessarily fun to think of writing that way, but we need people who can kind of stick with it for the long term. And I find that a lot of times people who are in it for a long time and publish multiple books they're not necessarily the most talented writers, but they're the ones who just stuck with it. It's kind of like anti-advice. I don't know. <laughs> and now a reading from Monsters I Have Been. What I like about you, it's after Kenneth Tam's Breakfast in Bed. And Kenneth Tam is a video artist, I think based in LA and... I went to see an installation or an exhibit at some LA museum. The video was called Breakfast in Bed. And basically Kenneth Tam took a group of middle-aged men and stuck them in kind of a windowless office with fluorescent lighting for a weekend and had them do kind of like male bonding exercises. And he videotaped the whole thing and it was extremely awkward to watch. And it was also very inspiring to write about. So what I like about you, bro, you're lanky and tall. Your eyes really stand out. Got a lot of hair growing from your chest, spilling. I'm jealous of your beard. It's nice and full. Jealous. 
You look like you take care of yourself. When we dance, I love the way our bells swing. Got a good physique. You're a good looking guy. We coordinate well. You've got good ideas like swinging our hips right and then left. You take leadership, appreciate that. I chase you with blue paint and you spring away. I wanna make my mark on you like all the other guys. Love your skin tone, darker than mine. Let me glue this Cheerio to your chest. I'll avoid the hair. Though dusky, your skin's bright under fluorescence. This blindfold fits perfectly under your tinfoil hat. Find me, bro. I'm rustling in the far corner. I'm circling, watching, and smiling. I'm teasing your neck. Let's hold hands and jingle. That's what the video was like. I mean, all the things in that poem happened in the video. She's people, 10 apologies. So she's people, 10 apologies is a Franken Poe that combines celebrity sexual misconduct apologies from Ben Affleck, Matt Lauer, Russell Simmons, Roy Moore, Charlie Rose, James Toback, George H.W. Bush, Harvey Weinstein, Lois C.K., Kevin Spacey, George Takei, and Aziz Ansari. I have notes in the back of the book that tell you the original text that the Frankenposer constructed from. She's people, 10 apologies. One, I came of age in a national innocent man, I. Two, now, I don't believe these events. Understand, I am a man racked with grace. Three, I gladly listen, uncomfortable, but I. Four, I offended women, but I'm founded in great hardship. I has stories, hope, grace, touching excuses, I. Five, this is my regret basket. Honestly, I'm the last accountable man, think I. Six, beyond victims, my wake up record is clear. A depth of career party consciousness, a gubernatorial man pursuing hotly. Seven, spiritual intentions, ethics coincidental. Eight, you believe the attacks and predicament videos? Non-consensual, but good-natured. Nine, my behavior cannot have been seriously, sincerely remiss, a double-digit nothing. I deserve a superhero investigation. 10, it's not an excuse. Time will apologize. Dear I Ching, am I a real man? Nourish the prince and heaven becomes a fixed space ahead of danger. A system of melancholy, this man paradise, an inward mass of ambush. Your antithesis heart, you are quarrelsome water, upward rain. The preceding image, a difficult bridge, 
an entangled chariot of imperial muscle, a disorder declining towards the animal, a string man drawn away, receding. Time is superior in its direction, but even among the dead, atoms conflict. See this cloud, pervasive, borderless. Do not ask again. Deep ear light, you could be fuel for gender thievery, a majestic encroachment. The Writer's Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.